Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A warning before we start. The material in this podcast is very dark. We'll be discussing violent crimes against children. We'll try to be restrained where we can. But to tell this story, we sometimes have to be pretty graphic. Ready? My children were raised much the way I was. Get home at night when the streetlights go on. The kids played outside all the time. And there are no children playing outside in this neighborhood anymore. And I walk by the bus stops, and the mothers are there when the bus picks them up, and they're there when they drop them off. When I grew up, if you went to baseball practice, your mom or dad didn't have to sit there in the bleachers the whole time. It it was so awesome, and it almost sounds like make-believe now. You could ride your bike anywhere. People were friendly and made eye contact. There'd be noise on the street that was kids' laughter and screaming and talking. It wasn't quiet like it is now. What's one of the first things you get to do as a preteen? You get to walk to the drugstore and buy something. And we all did it, and then you couldn't. It changed life as we knew it. That was Kathy King and her father, Barry. Kathy's younger brother, Tim King, was abducted, molested, and murdered in Birmingham, Michigan in 1977 when he was 11 years old. From ID, this is The Clown and the Candyman, an eight-part podcast about two pedophiles and murderers from the 1970s and the tangled web they wove. I'm Jacqueline Bynan. ¶¶ 
After Dean Carl, the Candyman in Houston, and before John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown in Chicago, there were other cases of abuse and murder of kids in the 70s that provides disturbing new evidence that connects all of these cases. But first, some context. There's a big difference between growing up in the 70s and growing up today. Today's parents want to know where their kids are all the time. In the 70s, not so much. My mother forced me to go and play outside. She'd say, get outside and find something to do. And I did. I'd hang around the sidewalk. Maybe the kid up the street was out. I'd get on my bike and ride around the neighborhood looking for other kids. When I think about it, my parents really had no idea where I was or what I was doing. Now my father, I was his personal slave. He would always send me to the store for cigarettes. And that's because he was always watching TV and way too lazy to go himself. And so he would time me. Now buying cigarettes was never a problem back then. The people in the store, they sold them to me. They sold them to anybody. Imagine that today. So I'd race back with a pack of cigarettes, hoping to beat my record. Eventually, I realized that my father never timed me at all. He just wanted to smoke. There was always a boogeyman, but they were always somewhere else, not in the suburbs. Even after Dean Coral murdered 27 boys in a supposedly safe suburb of Houston, across America, the suburbs were widely considered safe. But the story I'm about to tell you changed that. This case ushered in the era of stranger danger and changed the way we raised our kids. In 2017, I began working on a documentary for ID called Children of the Snow. The series looked at a cold case from the late 70s. Four kids from four different suburbs of Detroit snatched off the street. They were held for days, sexually abused and smothered, and then dumped in the snow. For 43 years, someone has gotten away with the murder of those four kids. The case is still unsolved. Well, sort of. During this investigation, I learned three things. There's always something lurking beneath the surface of everyday life. Money and power can make a lot of things go away. And there's always more to a story than you hear in the news. And that's where this story begins. In 1977, Tim King was the last victim of the Oakland County child killer. And since then, his family has never given up searching for justice. This case would have withered on the vine had it not been for Barry King, Tim's brothers, Chris and Mark, and his sister, Kathy. She's the one who gave Tim the 30 cents to go to the store for candy the night he disappeared. That was Kathy you just heard at the top of the show. Imagine how hard it must be for her to have that memory. In many ways, it shaped her life. Yet she became a lawyer, married, had kids, and she did build a life the way her brother never got a chance to. For me, Tim's dad, Barry, is at the heart of this story. Barry wasn't well when we spoke, 
but he never turned down a chance to talk about his son, Tim. Sadly, Barry died not long after this call. He was 89. Good morning. Barry King, it's Jacqueline Bynan calling. It's been a long time, Jackie. It's been too long, Barry, but I want you to know I think about you often. Thank you. I do. I think about you a lot. You are one of my top five memorable people of all life, and I mean that. You've had a very deep impact on me. We'll pat yourself on the back. <laughs> so anyway, so we had, the last time we talked was uh, when we uh, interviewed you for Children of the Snow, and that was back in 2018. So how's your, how's your health been since then? Because I always remember you used to say to me, Jackie, every day's Saturday. I have uh, had some deteriorating uh, physical conditions this year, and uh, the likelihood of me living to be 100 is very remote. I'm rooting for you, Barry. (laughs) Okay, thank you. So, Barry, I'm going to start with a very simple, very difficult question. Do you still think about Tim? Certainly. Uh, Since I retired, uh, I think about him every day. Every time I leave the den, I kiss his picture. He was a superior student and child. And Marion raised three other children, all of whom became very successful, even though they've been terribly disappointed in what happened to Tim. There's no explanation coming from anybody. You sent me the other day a new title for something that you had written, Words for Deaf Ears and Stone Walls. So what did you mean by words for deaf ears? Nobody listens to me. Oakland County will not talk to us. If your child was murdered and all you got was silence for four decades, you'd be as upset as I am. Let's revisit the four murders one by one. The first kid, 12-year-old Mark Stevens, he went missing one Sunday afternoon in February of 1976. Mark was at the American Legion Hall in Ferndale, where his mom worked, but he left to walk home to watch a war movie on TV. Now, Mark loved war movies. He wanted to be in the Army when he grew up. Somewhere along that walk that he'd made so many times, Mark disappeared. The local police canvassed the neighborhood, but there was no sign of Mark. Until four days later, his body was found in a parking lot in Southfield. He'd been sexually assaulted. The medical examiner said he'd been smothered only hours before he was dumped by the killer. It was horrifying. Yet spring turned to summer, and there were no arrests, and the media turned their attention to other stories. Mark Stebbins' murder was put down as an isolated incident. Ten months later, and three days before Christmas, it happened again. This time in Royal Oak, just two miles away from Mark Stebbins' home. Twelve-year-old Jill Robinson had an argument with her mother. Who hasn't when you're twelve? She stepped outside on the porch to cool off and grabbed her bike and was last seen on Woodward Avenue, riding to her dad's house in nearby Birmingham. She never made it. Four days later, 
a motorist noticed something at the side of I-75 near Troy. It was Jill. She'd been dumped in the snow and shot with a 12-gauge shotgun. This time, the medical examiner said there are no signs of sexual assault. Nine months apart in separate towns, one boy, one girl. No one made any connection between Mark and Jill. Children continued to play outside. January 2, 1977, just seven days after Jill was found, another little girl, 10-year-old Christine Mihalik, begged her mother to let her walk the two blocks to the 7-Eleven so she could buy a teen magazine. Her mom was worried about her crossing a busy street in Berkeley, so she said, you make sure you get home quickly. It never occurred to her that her daughter would be kidnapped. Christine Mihalik never made it home. This time, it did make headlines and people were scared. Someone was picking up kids on the street, killing them and dumping them in the snow. I remember talking with Christine's mother, Debbie. After all these years, I can still hear the pain and the sorrow in her voice. It never entered my mind, really, that she was kidnapped. You know, that, you, know you just don't think in those terms. But after the first 24 hours, then, you know, your imagination just goes wild, and then you're obviously thinking of, you know, something tragic's happened. Nineteen days later, a postman noticed a blue jacket sticking out of the snow on a country road in the town of Franklin. Like Mark Stevens, Christine Mihalik had been smothered just before being dumped in the snow. The medical examiner first said there were traces of semen found, but a few days later he said he was wrong. Ten weeks later, in the upscale suburb of Birmingham, 17-year-old Kathy King was heading out to a Jerry Lewis show with her friends. Her parents, Barry and Marion, were at dinner with a client. Chris, who was 16, was babysitting, and Mark, who was 13, was at a play rehearsal. 11-year-old Tim was going to be home alone for the first time, and only for about 45 minutes. He asked his older sister, Kathy, for 30 cents for candy. He was going with his skateboard to the pharmacy just a few blocks away, and he was going to come straight home. That was around 8 p.m. When Barry and Marion got home at 9, Tim wasn't there. That's when fear turned to panic in Oakland County, Michigan. Here's Kathy King. I think the level was at, you know, full-blown terror. Parks emptied. Kids who played outside were now inside. Every parent warned their kids, beware of strangers. Oakland County mobilized and formed a huge task force. At the time, it was the largest manhunt in history. And now, the Oakland County child killer was national news. The police stopped cars. They canvassed neighborhoods. They set up a tip line. Maybe this time they could find Tim alive. Barry and Marion even went on TV begging the kidnapper to let Tim go. Well, I want to say hi to Tim. Uh, we love you, Tim. God bless you. Uh, stay tough. Uh, if you miss the uh, Little League tryouts tomorrow, Mr. Ryder said you can try out next week. Say your prayers and we're with you, buddy. Six days later, two motorists in Livonia, another Detroit suburb, spotted Tim's body in the ditch. His orange skateboard dumped beside him in the snow. 
Tips flooded in from the public, 18,000 in fact. Everyone wanted to help. The task force, 200 cops strong, investigated for a year and a half. What was strange was that after Tim was killed, the abduction stopped. No more kids were taken. And if the police knew why, they weren't telling the public. Finally, in December 1978, the task force shut down. No more money, they said. Not one arrest, no suspects, and if there were, no one knew about it. How did that happen? That's what a lot of people were asking. And here's a coincidence for you. The task force shut down the same month, December 1978, that a 15-year-old boy named Robert Peast was reported missing in Des Plaines, Illinois, 300 miles away. Robert Peast was the last known victim of John Wayne Gacy. But that's for a different episode. Fast forward 30 years. Mark Stebbins' mom, Ruth, died. In 2004, Marion King, Tim King's mom and Barry's wife, died of cancer. Neither knew who killed their sons. Anytime Barry got a lead, he dutifully passed it on to the Michigan State Police. Sometimes it takes one determined cop to open up a hidden can of worms. Enter Detective Corey Williams. One of my favorite parts of this job is hearing the stories that detectives tell. Not the ones that they say in court or the stories you hear in newscasts. These are the inside information that we all really wonder about. And Corey Williams tells a great story of how he got involved in this case. What Corey learned would change our understanding of what happened to the four children murdered in Oakland County. In 2004, I was investigating a cold homicide out of Livonia, and I was able to identify Richard Lawson as the trigger man in the homicide. He had been arrested in Dormont, Pennsylvania for an armed robbery about two months after the murder. And I was reading Lawson's statement to the Dormont police and he made a statement in there that I know who did the Michigan snow killing. Yeah, I know exactly what he was talking about. What did that mean? Well, I knew that he was referring to the Oakland County child killings. Here's another one of those strange coincidences in this case. Corey Williams grew up in Berkeley, Michigan. He was 15 years old when Christine Mihalik went missing. Corey's dad was a cop and friends with Christine's grandfather. The night she went missing, he called Corey's father. And it was Corey who answered the phone. And when you're 15, you remember things like that. So here we are in 2004. Corey's murder suspect, Richard Lawson, says he knows who killed those kids. Corey doesn't know it yet, but he's about to crack open a case that's been cold for 30 years. So you arrest this guy for murder. He says he knows about the snow killings. Who was this Richard Lawson suspect, this trigger man? Lawson was a known pedophile, and he had been an informant for the Detroit police at the time of the child killings. Okay, so he said, uh, I know about the snow killings. What did he tell you? Basically, he told me that he believes it was a, a group of guys. One, he called Ted Orr. Other guy, he named him Bob Moore, 
and a third guy he didn't know his name, but felt that these guys were involved. In- I think we're, what you're going to get into is like Ted Lamborghini, the auto worker, my favorite character of all time, Bad-Eyed Bob, who's eaten by his dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is where I have to interject. There are so many crazy things about this case, and Bob Moore is one of them. This guy was a bad guy, and he hurt a lot of kids. But do me a favor and Google his mugshot. Bad-Eyed Bob lives up to his moniker. And let's not talk about the way the guy died. Bad-Eyed Bob had a heart attack, and he wasn't found for days. And his pit bulls, who were locked in the house with him, ate him. And that was the end of Bad-Eyed Bob. So what did you do after that? I was looking for Ted Orr and Bob Moore and Lawson. And sure enough, they were living all right in the heart of Cask Order back in the 70s. For people who are not from Detroit, paint us a picture of the Cass Corridor. Sure. In the 70s, the Cass Corridor was well known around the Detroit area as a haven for prostitution, drugs, child pornography. In the 60s, a lot of folks moved up to the Detroit area to get jobs in the auto factories. They didn't have much money, and a lot of them were single parents with six, eight kids, and they couldn't supervise them, and they were working. Well, that was, a lack of a better term, kind of a buffet for these pedophiles. Like Bob Moore lived in cast in a big home, and he had boys living with him, usually runaways. And up the street on Woodward, he rented a place above a movie theater where he was filming child porn up there and distributing it through a pornography shop. And child predators could come in and look at child porn. It was off limits to everybody else. And so they knew who was buying it. They knew who was making it. And so they knew each other. These groups of men were very well organized, so much so that they had rank structures and they would have meetings where they had to meet in person, obviously, prior to cell phones and the Internet. Um, they would meet, swap boys, they'd call them parties. Corey, were you surprised by this? I was surprised how organized, how tight-knit these pedophile rings were and that they were operating right under the noses of everyone. And then I realized as I went along in this investigation that wasn't so much that people didn't think it was happening. They didn't want to believe it was happening. And why weren't these guys going to jail? I know these kids were talking, telling someone, but no one was going to jail. So, Corey, Lawson says it's these three pedophiles from the cast corridor who killed these kids. Which one of them did you track down first? Wasn't it the guy called Ted Orr? He turned out to be a guy named Ted Lamborghini, the auto worker. Isn't that the guy? Correct. He's a career pedophile, sexual predator. I put him in prison for life for molesting kids back in Detroit in the 70s. But he had never been arrested before. If you sense a theme developing, you're on to something. In the 1970s, there were pedophiles just like there are today. 
but there was no internet, so they ran in groups, and they were all interconnected. The Candyman's killer told that to police in Houston. Now, Corey Williams is hearing about the same thing in Detroit. So remember, this is 2004, 27 years after the murders. If Corey could get known pedophile Ted Lamborghini to talk, maybe they could finally solve this case. Now, Ted admits he was a pedophile, but he denies killing the kids. He even takes a polygraph about the child murders, and he bombs it. He bombs it big time. Clearly, the guy knows something. We still wanted him to tell us why he failed the polygraph. Kim Worthy, our elected prosecutor, said, listen, he's in his 70s. We're going to be sending him to prison for life. If he'll talk, we'll reduce his charges down where he can do as low as 10 years. And he not only would not talk to us, he did something very unusual. He pled guilty straight up on the nose to all 17 counts and went away quietly to prison. He wouldn't talk. What do you think he was hiding? We may never know. It was the first concrete polygraph failure of any suspect ever in the Oakland County child killings. Well, that's what everyone thought. Until 2006, when Tim King's brother, Chris, got a phone call from Vegas one night, and all hell broke loose. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I just want to clear something up. The children killed in Oakland County were not runaways, nor were they like some of the troubled teens preyed upon by Dean Coral and the Detroit pedophile ring. What Corey Williams stumbled upon is the possibility that a few members of this Detroit pedophile ring extended their territory to the suburbs and grabbed ordinary children off the streets of Oakland County. Now, in 2006, the family of the last victim, Tim King, is about to find out, years too late, that someone confessed. Here's Chris King, Tim King's brother. In the summer of 2006, I received a phone call in the middle of the night that really changed everything about the case. It was from a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in more than 30 years, and he told me he'd become a polygraph examiner and was at a polygraph convention in Las Vegas. And he had this really interesting conversation about my brother's murder with a polygraph examiner from Southfield, Michigan. And this friend of mine, he said, coincidentally, I became a polygraph examiner because my neighbor was killed. His name was Timmy King. Do you remember that case? The fellow was shocked and he said, oh my God, I polygraphed the person that killed your neighbor boy. Chris King immediately called his sister Kathy and they turned their lead over to the one cop they trusted, Corey Williams. And for the next two years, Detective Williams and the King family tracked down the identity of the man who the polygrapher said confessed to the murder. But it appeared to the King family that the Michigan State Police and the Oakland County prosecutor were not cooperative. They refused to talk to Barry King about their investigation. They refused to share files. Barry would spend years suing for those records. Over 30 years and no answers. Barry King had had enough. He turned to the press. Enter Detroit News reporter Marnie Rich Keenan. If you want to know everything, and I mean everything about this case, you need to read Marnie's recent book, The Snow Killings. It takes you inside this investigation. So, Marnie, why did the King family go public with this Vegas lead? The family felt they were being stonewalled by the Michigan State Police after handing them the most promising lead that had been hidden for 35 years And that suspect, the one who confessed, his name was Christopher Bush. And it turns out a lot of people in Oakland County knew that name. Who was Christopher Bush? Christopher Bush was, uh, his dad was the head of North American operations for General Motors. And they owned a big home in Bloomfield Hills, which just a mile or two from where Tim King lived. He was, uh, Fed with a silver spoon his whole life, was a pedophile, was a creep. He was charged with four counts of child molestation with kids in Genesee and Oakland County. Um, 
during the course of this whole investigation, the King family's telling me about different cops independent of each other, telling the same story that this case was solved, that it, the guy involved was a son of a rich GM executive, and he he's dead now, which sounds exactly like Chris Bush. The King family had been hearing rumors for years that the killer was the son of a General Motors executive, and they were hearing it from cops. The Kings were getting this information and talking about a big cover-up. They say that money and power can make a lot of things go away. Well, wait for it. Christopher Bush's family got an expensive lawyer to fight all his charges, and he had a lot of charges. In Oakland County, he'd been picking up kids along Woodward Avenue, and three of those locations matched exactly where the four kids disappeared. His lawyer took him for an independent polygraph test, you know, to see how he'd do if the cops made him do it on the record. And during the pre-interview of that test, the polygrapher asked Christopher Bush if there was anything he'd done that might make him fail the test. That's when Christopher Bush confessed to killing Tim King. But you see, this was all protected by attorney-client privileges, so no one knew this happened, except the polygrapher who did the test. And that's the guy from Vegas who spilled the beans 30 years later. The info he gave was supposed to stay secret. And remember, Corey said Bush had four charges in Genesee County as well. While Bush had been arrested with another pedophile buddy for molesting kids in nearby Flint, Michigan, just four days after the third victim, Christine Mihalik, was murdered. His buddy turned on him and said Christopher Bush killed Mark Stebbins, the very first victim. I remember talking to one of the cops on the Mark Stebbins case, Lorne Doan. I remember I asked him what he thought when the Flint police called with the lead. He said, we thought we had the Oakland County child killer, and he made no bones about that. So Lorne Doan and the prosecutor went to Flint. They scheduled a polygraph for Christopher Bush about the murder of Mark Stevens. Imagine their surprise when a well-rehearsed Chris Bush passed that test. Now back then, Polygraph tests were considered the gold standard. So Bush's wealthy family paid his bond and Christopher Bush was released. Six weeks later, Tim King was abducted. So how did Bush pass the polygraph? Detective Williams years later had experts re-examine that test and they say the polygrapher misread the results. Christopher Bush actually failed that polygraph. But Detective Williams can't do a thing about it because a year and a half after Bush was released, he was found shot to death in his parents' Bloomfield Hills home and police ruled it a suicide. But was it? A couple of odd things about that. First, shooting yourself with a long gun is doable, but it's hard. Let's look past that. In the room where Christopher Bush was shot, there were ropes in the closet, a shotgun shell on the dresser. Is that normal? Or did someone dress up the scene? 
We don't know. Here's something we do know, and this will curl your hair. On the wall of Christopher Bush's bedroom was a piece of paper with a pencil sketch of a kid, a boy's face contorted in a primal scream. And that boy looks so much like Mark Stebbins that it simply cannot be dismissed as a coincidence. If you don't believe me, look up the picture. So what did the police make of those clues? Here's what Corey had to say. They thought they had had the guy and had screwed up and let him go, and then the king boy was abducted. Then they, they never they never tell the families any of this information. Corey, you told me you thought that Christopher Bush was murdered. Why do you think that? I feel that someone was trying to point him out to the police. That picture drawing was on the wall, the rope's in the closet. Someone thought Bush was running his mouth or thought we need to get rid of this guy. If Christopher Bush was murdered, who do you think did it? Well, there's lots of people that would have wanted him dead. He was an embarrassment. Could have been associated with the guys involved in these murders. Maybe that's why. So a couple of theories. One, Bush killed himself because he was a troubled, drunk pedophile who couldn't take it anymore. Or, someone in his pedophile ring murdered him to make it look like a suicide, hung a creepy picture of Mark Stevens just to get the point across, and hopefully the cops would close the case. None of it can be proven. Yet. I asked Marnie Keenan what she thought. They covered it up to save face. Law enforcement contrived and conspired to shut the Bush investigation down right away. And their plan was to keep it hidden, to never, ever let the world know that there was a four-time convicted pedophile that lived in the area within a five-mile radius. But the allegations don't end there. According to Marty Keenan's book, in recent years, Detective Williams investigated claims made by women who say they were repeatedly sexually abused by men who were part of GM executive management back in the mid-70s. They were sexually abused as children and they were frightened to talk. How could this have gone on? It's been 15 years since Detective Corey Williams started working this case. He started off looking for a lone sadistic killer, and discovered these kids were likely murdered by a group of men working together. If it hadn't been for the King family and Corey Williams, none of this would have ever been exposed. And Marnie Keenan has taken their evidence and run with it. What does General Motors have to do with this story and the ring? We know that Chris Bush's father was a prominent GM executive, and it was part of... Corey's investigation into the Cass Corridor that showed that these inner-city kids in the Cass Corridor were being serviced 
by a porn ring that involved some politicians and some high-level GM executives and other upstanding members of the of the community. And after I wrote the story, a few women came forward. They described ritual abuse by pedophiles that were higher ups in GM's executive management during the mid-70s, and they were still scared of repercussions and frightened to talk. We do know there was a ring of pedophiles in Detroit in the 1970s. We've named several of them. We certainly can deduce that the four kids murdered in Oakland County were preyed upon by more than one person. Just the fact that two victims were boys and two were girls suggests that. From there, the evidence gets hazy. Decades have passed, and people have died with secrets. This is what I was learning in these investigations. Remember what I said, there's always more to a story than you hear in the news? Well, with these stories, it always winds up worse than we think. Bigger, darker, more connected to other cases. Kathy King, Tim King's sister, has kept his case alive. Many tips have come in over the years, and they come to Kathy on her blog. As we were writing this episode, something big dropped. Well, at least very interesting to me, almost unbelievable. So I had to call Kathy back to get the inside story. So, Kathy, what is this new tip that just seems to have come in? The new tip that came in was a result of a woman seeing Marnie Keenan's book, and she saw that this Corporal Richard McNamee was the responding officer for the Chris Bush suicide. And she said, this officer sexually abused me from the ages of 8 to 11 while patrolling our neighborhood, Bloomfield Village. So Marnie files a Freedom of Information Act request with Bloomfield Township to get this man's records. And then we get all these documents that prove that she was not the only one sexually abused by a long shot. So a pedophile officer is the first person to respond to the Bush wellness check slash alleged suicide scene the mathematical odds of that being the case without something really strange going on were quite slim. Especially since that officer had half an hour with only Chris Bush's brother there before any backup arrived. You might recall the scene was set up to just scream out, I am the child killer. So McNamee is there for a good 20 to 30 minutes before the backup arrives. And he goes around and checks the the whole house. It raises questions like, did he tamper with the evidence? Did he stage the scene to look like a suicide rather than a murder? And if so, why? It could just be a coincidence that this pedophile cop is the responding officer. But with 
the number of coincidences in this case that have just been outright ignored. It's hard to just agree, oh, yeah, just a coincidence. There are still people alive who know why, and they're probably never going to talk. We reached out to Detective Sean Street of Michigan State Police because he's currently assigned to the cases. We asked for an interview, and he said, okay, well, i got to ask permission from the command, and I'll get back to you. But that was two months ago. I'm sure that despite Detective Street's commitment to this cold case, one of his superiors got to him and said, you do not talk to anybody. You don't talk to any of the press. You don't talk to anybody in media, and you sure as hell don't talk to anybody in the King family. Kathy King is now calling on Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel to take over the case. And so it continues. I started this case in 2017. I thought I was covering a cold case with one murderer involved. But this story took me in a direction I never expected nor imagined. Pedophile rings in Detroit were connected to a much, much larger web. Whether it's the clown, John Wayne Gacy, the candy man, Dean Coral, or the Oakland County child killer, there's always a wider web around it. Another thing about these stories, there's usually some well-known rich guy in the middle of it. We know that there was the wealthy real estate developer from Gross Point. And in 1960, he purchased a small island in Lake Michigan, and he installed an airstrip. And he recruited young boys through their parents to come to a nature camp. But instead, it was a multi-million dollar child pornography operation. And whenever people think, my God, how could this have happened? Forty years later, we have Jeffrey Epstein, who was accused of sex trafficking young girls on his mysterious private island. Yeah, I kept coming back to this going, well, the original pedophile island is in Lake Michigan. That's next time on Episode 3, The Original Pedophile Island. The Clown and the Candyman is an original podcast from ID and Cineflix Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Bynan. The series producer is Tara Hughes. John White is our editor, with mixing by VO2 in Toronto. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.